This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend to you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I'm joined today by my co-host, Doen Lee. Hello. Today we have two somewhat depressing titles, How High We Go in the Dark, a science fiction fantasy novel by Sequoia Nagamatsu, and To Paradise, a novel by Hanya Yanagihara, who is most famous for her Booker-nominated novel, A Little Life. Coincidentally, they are both American writers of Japanese descent who grew up in Hawaii, and both the novels contain pandemics. Intentionally or no, I think we're seeing this wave of pandemic fiction that um, we have been anticipating ever since COVID-19 started, that there would be this huge literary outpouring of um, books about the pandemic experience. Uh, So I think we are now hitting the crest of it. And in the past couple of months, there have been so many coming out, like uh, from uh, Anthony Doe's Cloud Cuckoo Land, which includes a pandemic aboard a spaceship. Uh, to Sarah Moss's The Fell, in which uh, a woman breaks quarantine and she goes out for a walk and uh, this ends really badly. Uh, At this point, you're probably thinking, why do people want to read about pandemics when they're going through a pandemic themselves? It's very curious. Um, We have touched on this before in our episode on uh, pandemic novels like uh, I'll Become You, The Plague, and uh, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven, which has now been adapted for HBO. Uh, great adaptation, I do recommend. Uh, it, what I think might be happening is that people want to see depicted what they themselves are going through or are afraid of, but, you know, it's, they see it happening at a fictional slant, uh, maybe slightly worse, and it's happening to someone else so they can kind of process what their feelings are about it without actually experiencing it themselves. It's worth noting that both Yanagihara and Nagamatsu did not start out writing their novels in the COVID-19 pandemic. Nagamatsu's, I think he's been working on it for more than 10 years, and it just very unfortunately happened to be released during a pandemic, but it's based on uh, his experience of his grandfather's death and uh, you know how he was not able to be there with him when he died. So, Wenli, what do you think of how high we go in the dark? It was so depressing. It nearly made me cry. <laughs> well, it happens um, in the not-too-distant future when humanity is grappling with another pandemic um, known as the Arctic Plague, um, which came about when an ancient virus trapped in permafrost was unleashed into the world um, as a result of global warming. And so this virus spreads around the world and changes life on Earth for several generations. So Nagamatsu's book is told in a series of um, interconnected chapters, and I think they also work quite well as standalone episodes, um, and it spans um, hundreds of years. Uh, One of the chapters, for example, is about a euthanasia theme park for terminally ill children, um, in which these children hop on heart-stoppingly exciting roller coaster rides, um, which which end up killing them. And another chapter um, that I found quite memorable was um, set on an interstellar starship Um, as people from Earth looked for a new home planet to colonize. So this is a book about love, humanity, maybe hope. But the one thing that struck me was how elegiac it felt. So when I read it, it felt a lot like like I was bidding the world as we know it, um, a slow, sad goodbye, which is a bit like what's going on in the pandemic with the so-called new normal and all this talk that the world will never be the same again. One of the things that I think was very good about it was um, the quality of the prose. Nagamatsu is a very good writer. Uh, it is science fiction, it's futuristic, but but what strikes the reader is how profoundly um, these human feelings and emotions are portrayed in the book. 
So I'm just going to read an excerpt from one of the chapters, the one in the theme park titled City of Laughter. The narrator is here employed as a stand-up comedian in the theme park, and his job is to um, essentially bring some cheer into um, these children's lives um, before they hop on the ride and die. So I'm just going to quote from this section where he describes what happens to them after they get onto the roller coaster. When every child was secured, the staff stepped back, creating a wall between the tracks and the crowd of parents who were cordoned off several feet away, security staff at the ready. The chain and hydraulics of the coaster began to hiss as the train rose to the sky. The staff clapped along rhythmically. At the halfway mark, I gazed at the cars, now at their tipping point, and closed my eyes right as the roar of the tracks and the joyous screams of the children grew to deafening levels and the train plummeted back to earth, through the first inversion, pulling tangies. And then the scream stopped. Brain function ceased in the second inversion. The little hearts quit pumping in the third. When I opened my eyes again, the heads of the children were bobbing, as if they were in a deep, impenetrable sleep. I think this is the one of the chapters that really got me. It's particularly grim because it's young children, even though you know that they would have died anyway. This is a more humane, suppose, humane way for them to be going when they're happy. Yeah, I suppose. I know we discussed, you know, um, novels about pandemics before, like Camus' The Plague, but maybe because this book starts in 2030, um, it feels a bit too close for comfort. It's too prescient for me to say I enjoyed it. I think it's like a like a grief novel. It's a novel about the way we process the other, the loss of others, and it comes at a time when we are having to process enormous amounts of loss, more so than our natural rituals can take mm. in. So you know they go to all these um, different ways of of you know grieving. So that like these funeral skyscrapers. There's one part where as uh, some people you get your body liquefied and turn it to an ice statue and send out a sea and then you melt into the sea, mm. which How is poetic. both, yeah, it's, it's poetic and also kind of macabre. But yeah, it's a, it's very much a grief novel, perhaps too close for people who have, you know, experienced that, but it might also be a way for you to process it. Yeah, it makes you want to hug your loved ones and tell them mm. you love them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, maybe it might make for a cool Netflix miniseries, you know, in the style of Love, Death and Robots, a series of animated shorts. I think the chapters would work quite well. They would lend themselves quite well to a, a series of that kind. Mm, what yeah. did you think of the ending, though? I thought it was quite bizarre. It reminded me of Cloud Atlas because it circles back in time. Talk about the prehistoric woman, prehistoric girl we saw mm, the, in the very first yeah. chapter. Without spoiling too much, uh, I think that it is a very... I, I really like the twist at the ending. I did not see it coming. Uh, and it, it like like when he says you, it is about the circularity of it all. A lot of people have compared this book to Cloud Atlas. And uh, Yana, Hanya Yanagihara's book, they've also compared it to Cloud Atlas. <laughs> I don't know why, but Cloud Atlas is having a big resurgent moment. But it's that, you know, the, the way that things that we do resonate across time and there are patterns and symbols that we you know, that keep being repeated uh, in ways that are beyond our ken. And yeah, I, I did like, I think that for me, the ending really stuck it for me that I, there was a part in the middle of the book where I was like, I don't know where this is going. This is getting a bit long, you know, all these different ways of grief. Uh, but when it came to the ending, I was like, ah, now I see what's going on. And yeah, so it was the ending that really sold it for me. Now, if you like what you're listening to, subscribe to our podcast series Bookmark This on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. 
like us and give us a rating too. Back to our show and on to our next book. Six years ago, Hanya Yanagihara conquered bestseller charts and she got on the Man Booker shortlist with her second novel, A Little Life, which despite being more than 700 pages of relentlessly graphic suffering, was somehow wildly popular. Some people just worship it. Some people said it was basically torture porn. I mean, uh, yes, I can see where both these groups are coming from. For the record, I gave it a very good review when it came out in 2015. Um, And I'm going to say that To Paradise is actually better than A Little Life, but also much harder to read. So it may not look like it, but it's actually shorter than A Little Life. It's about like 20 pages shorter or something in my copy. But it is even more complicated to explain. I'm going to try. To Paradise is divided into three sections, all of which orbit around this New York townhouse. The sections take place roughly in 1893, 1993, and 2093. And that the same names keep cropping up but attached to different characters. Uh, so each section will contain a main trio. The trio is called David Bingham, Charles or Charlie Griffith, and Edward Bishop. And then there are also other repeating names like Edens, Peters, and Nathaniels, and so on and so forth. Part one. In 1893, this is set in an alternate New York where same-sex marriage is commonplace. And uh, it's a kind of fantasiac novel of manners. So there's uh, David, he's the son of a wealthy family. He must choose between this arranged marriage of an older suitor, uh, Charles, who is very respectable and suitable for him. And uh, and it's between that and eloping westwards to California with his young lover, Edward, who may be a con artist. So that's part one. Then we get to part two, which is set in 1993 during an unnamed pandemic, which is something like the AIDS crisis, but it's never named. Uh, The main character is David, who is a young paralegal and his much older lawyer boyfriend, Charles. And they're hosting a dinner party for their dying friend. David is Hawaiian. He is estranged from his troubled father, who is also called David. And uh, his father is the dispossessed king of Hawaii who has been left throneless. This section also delves into the annexation of the islands of Hawaii to the United States, which began in the 1890s after a coup d'etat against the Queen. Part 3. In 2093, a series of pandemics and climate crises have left America a dystopia. The narrator here is a young woman called Charlie. She lives in Zone 8, which is what was formerly New York's West Village. She's in an arranged marriage with her husband who sort of cares for her well-being, but is not otherwise very, uh, you know, romantically in love with her or anything. Charlie is the granddaughter of Charles, the scientist behind the state's original pandemic response. And uh, this was a very controversial response. A lot of, in, in some lights, it was considered very inhumane. Uh, so you get Charles' story in a series of letters and you find out that Charlie was the victim of one of the pandemics when she was young and she was cured. But the side effects have drastically changed her physically and emotionally. So she has nearly no effect for and She's quite, you know, she's very passive and uh, she also, she, her physically, she's been affected a lot as well. So despite being set centuries apart, all these sections are connected by recurring tropes and themes. So the same things keep happening over and over again. There's a lot of colonial trauma. There's always either personal illness juxtaposed against public outbreaks of disease. There are a lot of arranged marriages. There are relationships with large age gaps. They are devoted, if overbearing, grandparents. And of course, you get the repetition of names. So at first, you're probably wondering, you know, why are the names repeating? So my best guess for this is that Iyana Gehara is trying to demonstrate that history in the novel is not a teleological journey towards utopia, but it is a recursive trap. 
And, you know, yet in the differences of each incarnation, there lies this very small possibility for change. So I like this book. Now, I don't know say I like this book more than A Little Life, but I do think it is technically better. It is more controlled, but it is even bleaker. I didn't think that was possible because A Little Life just like emotionally destroyed a lot of people. But it's uh, because it is so restrained and yet devastating at the same time. It's very unnerving to read her portraits on pandemic life, which, you know, she says were probably written before uh, the pandemic or during it. I'm not sure. So I'm going to read an excerpt here. The disease clarified everything about who we are. It revealed the fictions we'd all constructed about our lives. It revealed that progress, that tolerance, does not necessarily beget more progress or tolerance. It revealed that kindness does not beget more kindness. It revealed how brittle the poetry of our lives truly is. It exposed friendship as something flimsy and conditional. Partnership as contextual and circumstantial. No law, no arrangement, no amount of love was stronger than our own need to survive or for the more generous among us, our need for our people, whoever they were, to survive. And now the illness is under control and we are back to considering the incidentals of life once more, whether we might be able to find chicken rather than tofu at the grocery or whether our children might be admitted into this college versus that one, or whether we might be lucky in this year's housing lottery and move from Zone 17 to Zone 8 or Zone 8 to Zone 14. But behind all these concerns and minor anxieties is something deeper, the truth of who we are, our essential selves, the thing that emerges and everything else has been burned away. We have learned to accommodate that person as much as we can to ignore who we know ourselves to be. Most of the time we're successful. We must be. Pretending is the cost of sanity, but we all know who we really are. If we have lived, it is because we are worse than we ever believed ourselves to be, not better. Indeed, it feels at times as if all who remain are those who are wily or tenacious or scheming enough to survive. I know that this belief is its own kind of romance, but in my more fanciful moments, it makes a perfect sense. We are the left behind, the dregs, the rats fighting for bits of rotten food, the people who chose to stay on earth, all those better and smarter than we are, have left for some other realm we can only dream of, the door to which we're too frightened to open, even to peek inside. So it's worth noting that this is said by the scientist Charles, who is himself responsible for some very controversial human rights violations. So it may say more about him than any overarching moral the novel is trying to preach. But that said, Yanagihara does love to rail against passivity and a lack of action. So it's very, yeah, so this is why I say this is maybe one of the bleakest novels I've read about the pandemic so far. So she's concerned with this idea of the American dream and the idea of paradise because paradise is an exclusionary concept because, you know, you get there and it depends on how some people get in and some people are left outside. So she's focusing on, you know, who gets in, who gets left outside. And each section will end with the phrase to paradise, even as it seems less and less likely that anyone's ever going to get there. But I do want to end with this vision of paradise that she writes in the middle of the book, which I truly love, in which David, uh, paralegal David, imagines walking hand in hand with his partner into what he calls an unbroken chain of houses, the people they love resurrected and restored, an eternity of meals and conversations and arguments and forgivenesses. Together they walk through these houses, opening doors, greeting friends, closing doors behind them, until at last they'd come to what they somehow knew was the final door, and here they pause a moment, squeezing each other's hands before turning the knob and entering a kitchen just like their own. The same jade green walls, the same gilt-edged china in the cupboards, the same framed etchings on the walls, the same soft linen dish towels hung on the same ash-carved pegs. 
but in which a mango tree was growing, its leaves brushing the ceiling. That's a lovely image. Yeah, that's the one I want to hold on to. Unfortunately, it is in the middle, not at the end. Uh, and the end is truly a very, very bleak book. So I'm not sure I would recommend it to people who are themselves struggling with reading at this point. It's uh, very long and very sad. But it is a beautifully written book. So, you know, I, you know, at some point, I hope you'll get to it. Would you call it too indulgent? No, I think I would have called A Little Life too indulgent. This mm. one is not indulgent. It's far more calculated than, and far more controlled. Then again, Yana Gihara, she does have this very, you know, 19th century maximalism. She writes huge, sprawling yeah. <laughs> concepts. And uh, she, nobody... I think nobody reigns her in. And you know, that's, I mean, I don't think that's a problem for me, but for some people, they're like, why isn't this book shorter? Yes, it could be shorter, but you know, that's not the point. And that's what we have for you this episode. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm Toen Lee. And you have been listening to our Bookmark This podcast, which you can subscribe to on your favorite smartphone audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and rate us. We'll catch you next time. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A W E D I O.